you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it uh, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Someone asked me recently, they asked me, what is the most challenging aspect of your job? And after thinking about it for a while, I landed on this. It's overcoming what people think they know about Christianity. I think that's the most difficult, most challenging aspect of my job. Because you see, people outside of Christianity, as well as people inside of Christianity, have all sorts of preconceived ideas about who Jesus is, and about uh, what he should be doing in the world, and what he should be doing in, in your individual lives. But in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I think you're going to see that Jesus will not be boxed in, he will not be obligated by anyone's expectations of him. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow him on his terms, not on yours. And so I want to start reading this morning from Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, I'm going to read it all the way through, and then I'm going to come back and break it down, all right? You guys follow how this is going to go? We're going to read it all the way through, and then I'll come back and break it down. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, and they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Now this is all a very nice plan, but I'm just going to tell you right now that it is not going to happen the way way they have planned this. Verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, by the way, he was in a boat. That's why it says he landed. He wasn't in a plane. He was in a boat. Uh, He saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. They said, this is a remote place. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. So when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay, I want you to write this down. You're going to be surprised by what I'm going to ask you to write down. Write this down. There is revolution in the air. Write it down. There is revolution in the air. Now, I realize that even as I say that, it sounds crazy because there's nothing in this passage that says revolution at first glance. In fact, this sounds an awfully lot like a church picnic, like blankets spread on the ground, you know, families enjoying themselves on a beautiful summer day, drinking Coca-Cola, throwing footballs and Frisbees and singing songs together. But... There is revolution in the air in this passage. There's an urgency here in this passage. There is a sense of danger in the air. Let me show you uh, why I say that. The gospel writer John includes the same account, the same story in his account of Jesus' life and ministry. And he adds something at the end of this account that crystallizes what is happening here. 
He says this, I think I put it up here on the screen. Verse, uh, verse 14 of uh, the Gospel of John, he says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. John chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. Okay, did you see that? Did you notice that? Did you see that line? They want to make him king by force. This enormous crowd of people that's following Jesus here have it in their heads that the reason that Jesus and his disciples have gone out to this remote place is to secretly form and launch a political military revolution against the massive Roman Empire. That's why they're there. Okay? Notice at the end of the passage in verse 44, the text says that the number of men who were fed were about 5,000. Now, more than likely, that's just the heads of families being counted. So there are more like fifteen to 20,000 people out there. What are so many people doing out in the middle of nowhere? They've come to launch a political, military revolution. That's what they're expecting. That's why they're following him. This is what they want Jesus to do. And and let me ask you something. Who could blame them? Every day of their lives, these people woke up and were reminded that they were oppressed by a brutal empire that occupied their land. That's what they saw all day, every day. Roman soldiers marching through the streets. Roman crosses throughout uh, on all of the major fairways. Uh, Roman crosses with corpses hanging on them. To remind people what happens when you cross the mighty Roman Empire. Who could blame them for thinking that political liberation was their most pressing need? But even though they're convinced that a political military revolution is their most pressing need, Jesus Jesus wants to lead them on a different revolution. Now I want you to notice that nowhere in this passage does Jesus repudiate the idea that he's going to lead a revolution. It's just that the revolution he's going to lead is shockingly different than the one that these people are expecting. And what I want to do in the next few minutes, I I want to show you three characteristics of this shocking revolution that Jesus is going to lead and that many of you here today are a part of. Three shocking characteristics of this revolution that Jesus leads and that many of you here today are a part of. Here's the first one. You can write this down, make a note of this someplace. First, I want you to understand this. The Jesus revolution is about spiritual, not political, liberation. Jesus' revolution was about spiritual, not political liberation. Here's another way to say it that might be really more applicable to you. Jesus' revolution is about spiritual, not circumstantial liberation. Okay, for the people that Jesus was dealing with here, he wanted them to understand that his revolution was going to be spiritual, not political. But for you and me, I think where we want to go today is we want to understand that his revolution in your life is to be uh, spiritual, not circumstantial. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 34. The text says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I want you to underline or mark or highlight somehow that phrase, sheep without a shepherd. Those of you who grew up in church, you probably think, when you hear the word shepherd, you probably think of some kind of tender, quiet, 
uh, pastoral image when you read that line. But what you need to understand is that every Old Testament reference to sheep without a shepherd is a reference to a political military leader. Okay? Jesus is actually quoting Moses' prayer to God at the end of his life in Numbers 27, where Moses says to the Lord, he said, May the Lord appoint a man over this community to go out and lead them, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. He's talking about a political, military ruler. And so when Jesus looks out and he sees these people coming, And he says that they're like a sheep without a shepherd. He knows that they've come expecting him to start a revolution. But I want you to notice what Jesus does, which is shocking. Last line of verse 34. He sees them, he has compassion on them, they're sheep like it without a shepherd. And he says, so he began teaching them many things. Now, look, guerrilla revolutionary leaders, when their followers come to them and say, liberate us, uh, from oppression, they start handing out weapons. Okay? They start weapons training, don't they? Isn't that what they do? Isn't that what guerrilla revolutionary leaders do? They start weapons training. They're, they're handing out weapons, they're training. In fact, they're doing that in places in the Middle East today. But instead, Jesus starts teaching them, the text says, instead of handing out weapons. Now, what do you suppose that he starts to teach them? Well, look at what he does in the passage. Text says that he's teaching them, so in other words, he's speaking to them verbally, and then he gives them he gives them bread. What's the significance of the bread? On the night before Jesus dies, later on, we'll see this in, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he and the disciples eat together, and he tells them, "This bread is my body, which will be broken for you." And so, what what he's teaching these people verbally, and what he's showing them in in sort of an object lesson, is the gospel. This is his revolution. It's not political. It's not military. It's spiritual. It's a gospel revolution. Instead of handing them out weapons, he's handing them the gospel. Why? Because he wants them to understand something that I, I want you to understand. Is he's, he's saying to them here, he's saying, yes, I'm going to lead a revolution. Yes, I am going to be your liberator. But you need a deeper liberation than a political liberation. You have a hunger in you that is deeper than physical hunger. And all of your revolutions will go awry unless you first have the kind of revolution that I bring and deal with the emptiness and the fears and the problems inside in your soul and spirit. Okay, That's what he's saying to these people. You've got a deeper need than what you see. You're thinking you need a political military revolution. You need an internal spiritual revolution. Now, that's what he's saying to them. All right, what's he saying to us today through this passage? Here's what I think Jesus is saying to you and me today through this passage. You wake up every day just like these people, and you are reminded of some set of painful circumstances in your life. Like for some of you, uh, they're financial circumstances. For some of you, they're career-related. Uh, for some of you, perhaps it's, it's your marriage. Uh, maybe it's something going on with your kids. Uh, maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's a relational conflict of some kind. Maybe you're single. You'd like to be married, but you're not. Okay? And you think to yourself, 
Man, if, if I could just be freed of this, of this problem, whatever this problem is in your life that, that, you, that you think of, if I could just be freed of this problem, everything in my life would be fine. I, I, I could be so satisfied. And, and you think to yourself, that's the deepest need of my life. And so you go to Jesus expecting him to be your liberator from those circumstances. You pray, oh Jesus, uh, heal me. Oh Jesus, heal my marriage. Oh Jesus, liberate me from poverty. Liberate me from unemployment. Liberate me from being single, whatever it is. Oh Jesus, give me a different job. And you're convinced that whatever you've asked Jesus is what he should be doing for you. But he doesn't do it. And it disappoints you. And it angers you, and it frustrates you, and you wonder, what in the world is he doing? And I want you to hear me on this, okay? Every problem that you have, every issue in your life, every unpleasant circumstance in your life, if Jesus hasn't removed it, it's because he's allowing it in your life to make you aware of the hunger beneath the circumstance. The problem beneath the problem. The issue beneath uh, the issue. So you, you need a, a spiritual, emotional, psychological, social revolution that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let your circumstances do what Christ intends those circumstances to do to drive you to the gospel. Either... For the first time, for those of you who are here today that are outside of Christianity, maybe you're here today for the first time. Maybe you're here, you haven't been in church ever in your life. Maybe you haven't been in a long time. Let the, let the circumstances of your life do what Christ intends them to do. Make you aware that there's something deeper that needs to be filled in your soul. For those of you who are here that have been within Christianity for a long time, you have believed in Christ for many years, if Jesus Christ hasn't removed whatever the circumstances are in your life that you would like to have removed, let it drive you to work the gospel deeper into your life. See, Jesus' revolution is about spiritual, not circumstantial, liberation. Okay? Let this thing, whatever it is that's going on in your life, let it do what it's supposed to do in your life. Okay, that's the first shocking thing about the revolution that Jesus wants to lead. It's not the revolution you necessarily want him to lead. It's not circumstantial. It's spiritual in nature. Here's, the, here's something else shocking about this revolution that Jesus is going to lead. He wants them to understand that the leaders, he wants us to understand that the leaders of Jesus' revolution will be unqualified to lead it. How do you like that? That's, real, that's, that's inspiring, isn't it? That the leaders of Jesus' revolution will be unqualified to lead it. And I want you to see this, that Jesus goes out of his way to demonstrate that his leaders are going to be unqualified to lead this revolution. How does he do that? Well, you saw it in the text. It gets late in the afternoon, and Jesus is still speaking. And the disciples realize that no one has arranged a caterer. So everyone's going to have to go, uh, you know, everyone's going to have to be on their own about dinner, okay? So they make a perfect, perfectly reasonable suggestion to Jesus. They say, let everyone, uh, let everyone go to the nearby villages 
Uh, let them, you know, let them go to a cafe or a 7-Eleven or a Huck's or whatever they, whatever they had back then. And, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll all meet back here at 7 uh, for an evening session. And that makes perfect sense. But Jesus replies in verse 37 with these shocking words. He says, he says to them, he says, you give them something to eat. What was their response? They said this. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? In other words, that's impossible. And of course, see, this was Jesus' whole point. What he's saying is, until you see that what I'm calling you to do is impossible, you are absolutely unqualified to do it. I want you to look at how Jesus even does this miracle. First of all, he works with the food that they have, which is inadequate. And then only as the disciples go out with this inadequate food is it multiplied. Only as they go out does Jesus actually meet the needs. So he's like, you're, you're absolutely unqualified to do it, but go do it anyway. And then as they go, then Jesus does something to meet the needs of the people. Now here's, here's something that I think Jesus would say to us as a church through this passage. I want you to look at the last banner on either side of the room. It says, it says change the city. See, we, we, we want to bring, as a church, the revolution of Jesus to the city of Evansville. I think here's here's what Jesus is saying to us as a church. What I'm calling you to do, my revolution in the city of Evansville, it's impossible. Uh, it 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 will take a miracle to bring this revolution to the city of Evansville. It's just gonna take a miracle. Now, I just wanna be candid with you about, uh, about something this morning. Uh, I think it's the nature of what I do for a living that there are times that I get uh, deeply discouraged in my job. I, I don't think I'm the only one. I, I, I've heard other pastors uh, say the same thing. Um, but I, I find myself at times just deeply discouraged about what I do for a living and about the impact that we have in this city. Um, as it relates to the city of Evansville in particular, there is a spiritual apathy here in Evansville that is powerful. Frankly, uh, it's, it's too powerful for me to overcome. There are people on the outside of Christianity that they have, here in the city of Evansville, that have rejected Christianity as a judgmental, culturally repressive, legalistic, outdated way of life. Those are the people on the outside. But then there are also the people on the inside who seem to have lost any passion whatsoever about Christianity. Many of those people think that they understand the gospel But instead of living in the joy and the liberation of the grace of the gospel, they continue to live in shame and guilt and fear, and they're worn down to a point that only duty or obligation or ritual keeps them going to church. But there's little belief that uh, the relational and emotional and psychological issues that are affecting their lives, that are affecting their marriages, that are affecting their children's lives, or that are affecting the, the city of Evansville, uh, collectively, there's little sense of belief that any of those issues could be addressed through the gospel. And I get terribly discouraged by that sometimes. 
I feel uh, completely inadequate to, to do anything about that. And if you ever feel that, like if you ever feel like the problems and the brokenness of this city are so overwhelming that it would take like a miracle to change the city, I hope you'll let this passage be a source of encouragement to you, not discouragement. Encouragement to you, not discouragement. For one, your awareness of the impossibility of the task will force you to rely on supernatural intervention rather than on human, earthly power. That's one thing. But two, I want you to understand that if you are overwhelmed by the problems in the city and, and you're like, it can't be done, it, it, it will take a miracle, understand, you're the exact kind of person that Jesus wants to use and will use powerfully. Because the leaders of Jesus' revolution, you, you and I, we're, we're the leaders. We realize that we're unqualified in and of ourselves to lead his revolution. And Jesus works powerfully through the unqualified. Understand that. If you find yourself discouraged this morning, be encouraged. If you find yourself overwhelmed this morning, be encouraged. You're the kind of person Jesus uses because you recognize you're unqualified to be able to lead his revolution. Here's the third thing that I want you to see about this revolution that Jesus is going to lead. And, and frankly, this is the most shocking of all three things. This is the most shocking of everything he says. And that is that Jesus' revolution will begin with an act of weakness. Jesus' revolution will begin with an act of weakness. You know, revolutions uh, revolutions always begin with a show of strength. Always. They always do. You invade the city, you storm the fortress, you storm the Bastille, you do something and you show strength. That's how revolutions begin, with strength. But Jesus' revolution starts in a completely different way. Instead of a show of strength, it begins with an act of weakness. Now, What do I mean by that? Well, you can see it hinted at in verse 41. It says, text says that taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and he also divided the two fish among them all. I want you to notice two verbs. He gave thanks or blessed. That's another way, another translation of that particular uh, verb. He gave thanks or blessed. And then he broke. He gave thanks and he broke. He blessed and he broke. In Mark 14, just a little later in the book, when Jesus is at the Lord's Supper, the night before he's about to die, he says this to his disciples. He says, take it, this is my body. Same two verbs. Blessed and broke. And what he's doing here is pointing to that. Jesus is saying to everybody who's coming after him, everybody who's trying to make him king, he's saying, look, you want... You want a new leader. You want, you want a Moses, for instance. You want a Moses who will feed you with bread in the wilderness. You want a Moses who will liberate you from oppression. You want a new Moses, a new Joshua maybe, a new military leader, a new political leader. Well, he says, what he wants them to understand is, 
I'm not just a new Moses, I'm the ultimate Moses. I have come to do the ultimate exodus. Not to just liberate you for a while from political oppression, but to liberate you forever from sin and death. And here's how I'm going to do it. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? I'm going to let the enemy unleash all of, its, all of his power on me, on the cross. Jesus hanging there on the cross. The text tells us later on in the book of Mark, looking at the people that are killing him, the people rejecting him, he says to them, Father, forgive them. And then he died. In other words, he blessed the people who were killing him, and he was broken. That's how Jesus began this revolution. In a stunning act of weakness. By being killed on a cross. Now look, if you would be a part of the revolution of Jesus, you need to see Jesus on the cross. First, as your substitute. And second... As your example. First as your substitute. Verse 42 says that they all ate and they were satisfied. But would you just notice what had to happen for them to be able to eat? Think about this. Had the bread stayed whole, they would have starved out there. But if the bread is broken into pieces, they live. You understand what happens there? Either the bread goes to pieces... Or they go to pieces. Either the bread is broken or they're broken, ultimately, starving to death. Jesus said, I am the bread. What he meant was that I will be torn to pieces so that you can be made whole. I went to the cross and I took the penalty the human race deserved for everything that you have done. I absorbed sin, I absorbed the punishment, I absorbed judgment. If I had stayed whole, you would have been broken to pieces. But instead, I was broken to pieces so that you could be made whole. And so once you understand this, you see, that you are saved not by what you do, but by what Christ has done for you, that will satisfy you at the deepest level of your soul. It's what will liberate you from your fears. It's what will liberate you internally when you see Jesus as your substitute on the cross. You got to see him as your substitute, but you also have to see him as your example on the cross. Blessing and breaking. Do you, do you know why you have to see him as your example on the cross? I want you to think about this. In every other revolution, when you become part of the revolution, you go out and you take power in the name of the leader, whoever the leader is. That's what revolutions do. They take power in the name of the leader. But Jesus' revolution is very different. It is itself revolutionary. He has a revolutionary revolution. In that Jesus says, if you want to be a part of my revolution, you don't go out and take power in my name. You, You lose power in my name. You go out there and you serve. You go out and you lose power. That's how I saved you. You go out to live a life of service for all the people around you including the people who don't believe like you do, because that's how Jesus saved you. That's what he did. 
That's how Jesus' revelation, uh, excuse me, revolution advances, by losing power in his name. And you say, well, what do, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to lose power in Jesus' name? Let me give you two examples to close. Giving, for instance. Like giving money, for instance. If you give your income away to charity, if you give it away to the poor, if you give it away to the community, if you give it away to the church, if you're plowing your money into people's lives, boy, does that bring healing to a city. Man, does that bring bring liberation to a city? Absolutely it does. But it sure leaves you vulnerable. You don't have it socked, uh, you don't have it all socked away in a huge retirement program like the commercials on TV tell you that you have to do. You, when you give, when you give to people, when you give to things in the community, you lose economic power for the sake of other people. But if you don't do it, you're no revolutionary. In fact, if you don't do that, you're part of the problem. You're part of the very culture that we're trying to subvert. Okay? You give, you lose power. That's how Jesus' revolution works. You want to be part of his re- revolution? You give. Okay? Here's another example. Uh, relationships. Jesus says that we have to forgive everybody who wrongs us. We have to work like crazy to keep our relationships right. If you, if you see somebody over there who has something against you or if you have something against them, uh, Jesus says that you should go to them and again and again and say, look, I, I, I don't think we've got this right yet. Uh, we, we have to get this thing between us straight. Uh, you have to forgive. You have to reconcile. You can never give up. You can never just sit and stew. You, you can never just let a root of bitterness grow. Boy, let me tell you something. If you're in a community, if you're, if you're in a place where people are doing that all the time, oh my goodness, what a great community that can be in the long run. In the short run, though, like it makes you vulnerable. It makes you emotionally vulnerable. You're like, I don't, I don't want to go out and talk to people about my feelings. I don't want to go and let people know that I'm having struggles with them or let them talk to me about what they're having struggles with me about. You see, it makes you vulnerable. It's a loss of power. It's often a loss of face. If you don't do it, if you don't do that, if you're not doing that work of relationships, you're no revolutionary. You're part of the problem. You're part of the culture that we're trying to subvert. This is how Jesus' revolution moves forward. By his people going out and losing power in his name. Revolutionaries of Jesus understand that he was their substitute on the cross. And he was their example on the cross. His body was broken for you. His work on the cross is what saves you, not yours. And you go forward as a disciple of Jesus by losing power, not taking power.